you would take your Bibles and turn back to Mark chapter 15, where we left off a few weeks ago. While you're turning there, I want to say a word of thanks to you for praying me for me while I have strep throat, and I thank Ben for preaching for me for those three Sundays. Mark chapter 15, and we'll pick up with verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lamb, Sabakatha, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those stood by when they heard it, saying, Look, he is calling to Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone, let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his laugh. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Even though we are close to Christmas time and the celebration of that, I want to speak a moment about Easter. The week before Easter is often called Holy Week. Some churches have services every day, and they speak of what is called the seven words of Jesus, the seven sayings on the cross. Now, none of the gospel writers record all seven of these sayings, so therefore you have to harmonize the gospels together to get all seven. The traditional order is Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 43. Verily I say unto you today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. And then John 19, 26 through 27. Woman, behold thy son, says to the disciples, behold thy mother. And then Matthew 27, 46 and John 15, 34, which we just read. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And John 19, 28, I thirst. Verse 30, it is finished. And then Luke 23, 46, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. These seven statements are often called seven words. Forgiveness, salvation, relationship, abandonment, distress, triumph, and reunion. Now last time we examined Verse 34, my father, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? And then following that are the three short statements just mentioned. I thirst, it is finished, and father into thy hands I commit my spirit. Now that is sandwiched in here in Mark. He doesn't give us these words. He simply says that Jesus cried out with a loud cry. He does not state these statements, but the other gospel writers do. So that's where we have those statements. Even though Mark understands that Jesus said these, he just didn't state them just like the other gospels don't state all of the statements. But bringing them together, we see the harmony of these statements and what's happening there on the cross. Now, as he cried, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? We have to understand that this is very vital that we do not misunderstand what is happening here on the cross. How Jesus was forsaken, how he was abandoned by his father. Now, this is not easy for our minds to grasp. Great theologians do not completely understand all that happened in that instant when the Father forsook him, when he was abandoned. As John Murray says, these are high and heavenly doctrines. For that reason, of little appeal to the dull minds and the darkened hearts. 
So what is he saying? In other words, only those who are in Christ are able to understand these things. And even those that are in Christ, we have to understand that these are high and heavenly doctrines. Listen to what Matthew Henry says pertaining to what transpired when Christ said that he was forsaken. His father forsook him, that is, first, he delivered him up into the hands of his enemies and did not appear to deliver him out of their hands. He let loose the powers of darkness against him and suffered them to do their worst. The scriptures were fulfilled. God turned him over into the hands of the wicked and no angel was sent from heaven to deliver him. No friend on earth raised up to appear for him. Second, he withdrew from him the presence of comfortable sense of the complacency in him when his soul was first troubled. He had a voice from heaven to comfort him, and he was in agony in the garden. There an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. But now he had neither one of these. God hid his face from him, and for a while withdrew his rod and staff in the darksome valley. God forsook him. Not as he forsook Saul, leaving him to the endless despair, but as sometimes he forsook David, leaving him in a present despondency. And third, he let out upon his soul the affliction sense of his wrath against man for sin. God was made sin for us, a curse for us. Therefore, though God loved him as a son, he frowned upon him as a surety. These impressions he was pleased to admit and to waive the resistance of them which he could have made because he could accommodate him to this part of his undertaking. As he had done to all the rest, when it was in the power to have avoided it. So Matthew Henry gives us a little greater understanding of exactly what happened to Christ when he was forsaken, when he was abandoned. And as he was abandoned and as he was forsaken, he cried. And we have these three cries included here in Mark. In that sandwiched in, Jesus cried out a loud voice and then and he breathed his last. So in between those two statements are these three statements. Though Mark does not mention them, these exact words are given to us by the other gospel writers. I thirst, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commit thy spirit. And we see that the Roman centurion standing there then made this glorious declaration here by saying, there in verse 38d, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, I want us, as we think about these three statements that Jesus makes here, to think about four truths pertaining to this final cry, this impact upon Christ and upon us which should have a great impact upon our lives as Christians in our worship and service. First of all, what did Jesus Christ mean when he made this cry? Only John gives us this Greek word, this one Greek word, teleosa. It is finished, meaning it's accomplished, it's fulfilled. Everything his father had given him to do here on this earth had been completed as far as our salvation is concerned. Now that particular word also is used earlier in verse 28 when it says there that he had finished, fulfilled all that the father had given him. So when people come to their deathbed, they have regrets. When you and I come to our deathbed, we will have regrets of things that we were unable to do. We will think of something that maybe we did not say to someone, or somewhere we were unable to go, or some project we did not finish. 
or something else will be upon our mind and we may be saying, I wish I could have done that. But not so for our Lord Jesus Christ. He was perfect in every way. He accomplished exactly what His Father had given Him to do perfectly. Every day He accomplished everything the Father had given Him to do. Isn't that amazing? I mean, every day we come to our beds, we lay our heads on our pillows, and what do we begin to think about? The things that we weren't doing, the things that we did not finish. And it disturbed us, right? But not so for Jesus Christ. He accomplished everything, every single day that the Father had given Him to do. He never lacked doing anything. As fathers, we have ambitions for our children. And we are often disappointed when they don't reach those ambitions. If some of you watched W.A. Criswell's sermon that I mentioned a few weeks ago, in that sermon he speaks about how his parents wanted him to be a doctor because his mother's father was a doctor and she wanted him to follow in his footsteps. And he said that his parents were very disappointed when he did not become a physician and he became a preacher a preacher for over 50 years there at First Baptist Church, Dallas. But the Lord, we must say, was pleased that he was a pastor there at Dallas, even though his parents may not have been. Hopefully around some time later they came to the conclusion that's exactly what the Lord would have had him to do. But God the Father was thrilled with every single thing his son Jesus Christ did. From the time that he was born there in that stable in Bethlehem to the time that he went to the cross and said, It is finished. His heavenly Father was pleased with every single move that he made. He was never disappointed in any way with his Son. And his heavenly Father blessed him because he fulfilled all that his Son was given to do. We only dream of achieving such perfection because we know that we are constantly failing to achieve perfection. That's why we look to Christ. That's why we look to Him for the righteousness that we cannot earn, that which we cannot achieve. Only in Christ are we able to receive it. And as Jesus Christ drew closer and closer to His last breath, He knows that He has done everything required of His Father, that He has completed the work that the Father has given Him to do, so therefore He can say, it is finished. He delighted when we delight, when we can repeat such words. I mean, think about it. After you finish some task, might be a term paper, and you can say, it's through with, it's finished. It might be a trip with five kids, and you get to the end of that trip, you say, boy, I'm glad that trip is over with. Or it might be some project that you've been working on, building a house. They say you only build a house one time because you can't do it two times because it's finished after that first time, and if you try it again, you'll get killed by your wife, so it's finished. Or a note that you owe on a car or on the house or a marathon or even even a prison sentence or or Christmas shopping. My wife said this morning as we were on the way to church, she said, tomorrow I finish my Christmas shopping. I started to say back, well, I finished mine a long time ago. Some of you know what I'm talking about there. We delight in being able to repeat those words. It's finished. I mean, after we finish a task, we are satisfied. There's great comfort in that to be able to say it is finished. And we see that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is able to express with a deep inward sensation of relief. He had looked forward to the day when he could say in triumph relief, it is finished. It also reveals He was in complete control up to the very last seconds of his life. He was not delirious. These words weren't from a defeated man, but one that continued to be in control of all things, even his own life, even to the point to where he gave up his life. His life was not taken from him, as I was speaking before, but he gave up his life at the exact time 
that was ordained. He prepared to give up his life, and with this triumphant cry, he said, it is finished, because he had completed his work on earth. He had earned righteousness. He had paid the debt for his people's sins. And the angels in heaven may have said to one another, did you hear that? Did you hear what the Son of God said? That it is finished and rejoiced with him. Second, he did not shout, I am finished. But he shouted, it is finished. So what was finished? What precisely did he accomplish? What were his goals? Well, first, let me mention what he was not finished in doing. He still had a work to finish as the Lord Jesus Christ. He must rise again from the grave in three days. He must speak to his disciples for 40 days about the kingdom of God. He must ascend and be seated at the right hand of the Father. And on that last great day, he would deliver his kingdom and judge the wicked. Though he would be seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father, we know that he still had a work to do. As the mediator of God's people interceding on their behalf, but he must first taste death, be in the grave for three days. So all of these things were not included in that statement, it is finished. So what was finished by Jesus Christ? Well, the best way to answer the question is by asking, who was Jesus addressing when he made this statement? Well, this can be answered in three ways. First of all, he was speaking to sinners. He was saying that his God-forsakenness was finished. In other words, he would never again be forsaken by his father. He would never again be abandoned by his father. He had completed the work that God had given him to do. And part of that work was that he would come under the wrath of God and being under the wrath of God because he would become sin for us and be abandoned. That would never have to take place again. Once for all was the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. And this is why he continued to say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So the torment was finished. The suffering as the Lamb of God in taking the wrath of God upon himself was finished. He had propitiated. Remember children, I told you all what that word meant a number of weeks ago, propitiated. It means appease, he, he satisfied, he appeased the Father. How did he appease the Father? By doing all that the Father had given him, and part of that was what? Becoming sin, taking sin upon himself, paying the penalty of sin. See, sin could not just arbitrarily be forgiven. No, someone had to pay for our sin. Who was it, children? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ paid for our sin, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So sin had to be forgiven, and sin was forgiven in Jesus Christ. Years ago, an evangelist in England had ended his tent revival, and he was taking down his tent, getting ready to move to another location. And while he was moving his tent, a young man came up to him and he asked this evangelist, what can I do to be saved? Now what would you and I say if someone asked us, what can I do to be saved? We see that in the scripture, matter of fact, in Philippian Jeller. Well, this evangelist replied to him, you're too late. Well, this, of course, shocked the young man. So he asked, what do you mean? Now that the meeting is over, it's too late, I can't be saved? The evangelist said, oh no, that's not what I mean. You ask, what can I do to be saved? My reply is that your 1900 
years too late to do anything. Jesus Christ did all that needed to be done on the cross. All you need to do is fall on your face, fall on your knees, and repent and ask Jesus Christ to receive you and trust in Him. See, Jesus Christ's work is a finished work. We can't do anything to add to it. He accomplished it all. I've shared with you before how Joe Neeson tells me when he was in seminary and he was taking a class and the professor made a statement about salvation and Joe said, well, that was accomplished for me 2,000 years ago. And the professor looked at him and said, oh, you're one of them. Well, I hope you're one of them. What I mean by that, I hope you're one of them that believe that Christ actually accomplished something. He actually accomplished something on the cross. What did He accomplish? Paying the penalty for our sins. And we must remember that and we must teach that, our, that to our children that Christ accomplished salvation. Second, Jesus Christ is speaking to the entire groaning creation stating that the foundation of the new heaven and the new earth have been completed. He was given the responsibility to be the builder. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is the one that builds his church. He is the builder of the new universe. Therefore, he will fill it with righteousness. People who are in him. He was not the architect of the new heaven and the new earth. Of course, that was the Father. He was the builder of the new heaven and the new earth. And during his years here on earth, he laid the foundation on which for the last 2,000 years, the church has been built and continues to be built. Finished has two meanings in Scripture pertaining to the church. First, the conception of all things, and second, the consummation of all things. Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. Without Him, nothing was made. Finished. It is also to be found in the consummation of all things, as Revelation 16, 17 says. Out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Or you could translate it, finished, ushering in the new age. So these two events, creation and the consummation of all things, between them lie the fall, the groaning of creation, the coming of Christ to redeem the world. And He came to deliver men from sin's bondage and bring liberty to the captives, liberty to the children of God. Therefore, that is finished. And he took the curse away by being made the curse. And he made the new heavens and the new earth and filled it with his own righteousness. Therefore, it is done. It is finished. That's what he cries, and that's what the angels also cry. And without this finished work, what future would any of us have? If Christ had not accomplished this, we would not have a future. We would be like the atheist. We would think that we'd just merely become worm food. I mean, what kind of future is that? This past week, my wife and I went down to our hometown of Laurel, and as we went down there, we went to the cemeteries to be obedient to my mother, as she always does, goes and put flowers. Somebody has to carry on the tradition. So we went to put flowers on the uh, tombstones there to uh, four different cemeteries. And you know, you can do a lot of meditating when you go to a cemetery. I, I encourage you to do that. We spent a couple hours in going to these cemeteries and just walking through and trying to find family. And we were able to find family and look at him. And, and I thought to myself as I was standing there, these bodies have deteriorated. They're no more. Even though they're in the ground, they're no more. And they either went to heaven or to hell because there's no in-between. 
And it causes you to think about your own life. You know, one day I will be laying in a graveyard somewhere unless the Lord comes before then and takes me home. But that's the truth. I mean, what is your future? Scripture tells us that we who are in Christ have a glorious future. Not simply becoming worm food, but the minute that we pass from this life, we go into glory. Now, of course, we long for our body. The body doesn't come until later. But at least we're in glory, waiting for our body, our new bodies, our heavenly bodies. And what a wonderful thing. The only reason we have that hope is because of the work of Christ. And then thirdly, Jesus Christ is speaking to His Father telling him that all that he had given him to do is complete. All whom the Father has given me will come to me. They will all be saved. The foundation of the world he has established. God the Father gave the Son a people to save, so he willingly took them unto himself. Christ made that commitment to His people. He confirmed that commitment often. The night before this crucifixion, as He was in the upper room with His disciples and He instituted the Lord's Supper, He told His disciples that He must go away, remember? He said, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send someone else. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit that will be with you. But yet I will return. I must go away and I must prepare a place for you. And, and there's many mansions in my Father's house that I will prepare for you and I will return to get you. Now Jesus Christ is the only one that can do that. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father, comes to the Father. In other words, going to heaven, no one goes but what? Through me. I'm the only one that can carry you into the presence of the Father. Everything he told his disciples he would do, and he has done, fulfilled all of this work. It is finished. He completed salvation. All whom the Father has given him would come to Him, for He had purchased salvation for them. He had purchased righteousness for them. He had paid their penalty. His resurrection and His ascension would confirm this as He would ascend into heaven and sit at the Father's right hand. Sitting meant that it was complete. I mean, after you do your work, what do you normally do? You sit and you rest. And that's what Christ was doing. Going into heaven to sit and rest. In the Old Testament, there was the temple and there was no chair in the Holy of Holies for the priest were to be constantly at work, never finished with their work. He continuously was offering sacrifice every day, all year around. But Jesus Christ finished the work, ascended into heaven, and He sits. Listen to what Hebrews 10, 11 through 13 says. And every priest stands ministering day and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. But this man, speaking of Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin, forever sat at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemy or made his footstool. So Christ went into heaven and he sat beside his heavenly Father, for he had completed his work. So Jesus Christ is saying to his Father, it is all finished. God is speaking to God, stating that our redemption is absolutely finished. Nothing can be added to it. It's complete, it's safe, and it is secure. And in our third main heading, all the scriptures spoke of Jesus' humiliation as the Messiah, and they were fulfilled. We know that Scripture had to be fulfilled, had to be fulfilled by Christ, by the Messiah. He had to come in this manner as foretold 
that he would what? Be born of a virgin. We hear that all through this season. We ought to hear that all year long, not just during this season. He was born of a virgin. He was born there in Bethlehem. He was of the lineage of David. He had to go into Egypt. He had to return to Nazareth. Scripture guided Jesus Christ on his road of destiny. Sixteen times in the Gospels, the writers say, He went as it was written of Him. In other words, He was fulfilling every aspect of the Old Testament as He went. Most of the prophecies spoke about how He would suffer and die and be resurrected. From the very beginning, there in Genesis chapter 3, 15, we see that it was fulfilled, that Christ would crush the serpent's head. It was finished once and for all. Another aspect of the prophecies being fulfilled, and prophecies, when we speak of them, we're talking about picture prophecies. We're talking about shadows. We're talking about types. The Old Testament sacrifice. All of those were shadows. They were types of what were to come. The lamb that was sacrificed pointed to who, children? The lamb that was sacrificed pointed to Christ. John the Baptist said what? Behold the Lamb of God. So the Lamb that was sacrificed was pointing to Christ. It also spoke about the Day of Atonement when the Lamb would be sacrificed and the priesthood and the Holy of Holies. All of this pointed to Christ and all of it found its fulfillment in Him. So everything the prophet spoke of concerning the Messiah's coming and His work All of that was completely fulfilled by Christ. Paul confirmed this there in 1 Corinthians when he said, For Christ, what? Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. I mean, you can't be any clearer than that, can you? That he is our Passover lamb. That he is the one that fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. Jesus finished all his work. He even said earlier in his ministry in John chapter 4 verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish this work or to finish his work. The same Greek word is used in this passage that is used there in verse 39. So Jesus knew his purpose in living. It was to do his Father's work, all that he had ordained so that here on the cross he could say, I've done it, I've accomplished it, it is finished. And then fourth and finally, I want you to look at the consequences of the finished work of Jesus Christ for us. How do we as Christians, benefit from this finished work? What are the practical benefits for you and for me? Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29, Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. He offered sinners rest based upon this finished work. Forgiveness for all of our sins. Rest is the finished work of Christ. He paid the debt that you and I could not pay so that we could have rest. So we rest in His payment. I mean, think about it. Think about if you had a debt of a million dollars. You and I, because we're average income people, you and I could not pay that debt in a hundred lifetimes. Because the average income is 2.7 million in a lifetime. And then think about it, you got to pay all your other things you have. So you have this debt over here, you have a million dollars, but you have all the other responsibilities and you're expected to pay this million dollar debt. You can't do it. It's too great. And likewise, our sins are too great. There's no way we could ever pay them. Even if we have the ability, and of course we don't, we couldn't pay them off. We could never do that because there's so many sins. 
And we don't even know how many sins we commit each day. We have sins of commission and sins of omission. I mean, it's, it's into the hundreds. So you think about that. Just one day. And then you say 30 days a month. If it's in, Let's just say 100, which I believe it's even more than that. But let's just say 100. That's 3,000, right? I think that's right. 30,000. Anyway, not, well, anyway, figure it up yourself. But I'm, what I'm point is it's a lot of sins, right? And then you multiply that times how many years you live on this earth. So you're probably getting up there to that billion, see? You can't pay it. There's no way. You can't even think about all the sins that you've committed. Have you ever tried to think about all the sins that you committed? You can't. And I think God's grace keeps us from doing that. We would be just totally overwhelmed if we were all of a sudden had all of our sins brought to our mind. I mean, just a few sins that we commit bother us greatly, or at least it should bother us greatly. Our sins are great. And we have to remember that. Only Christ could pay the debt. And this is why it's called amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a worm like me. Let's don't change the word there. Let's leave it worm. That's what John Newton said. Because he knew that he was a worm. He knew that he was a great sinner. To know that our sins have been removed as far as the east is from west. To know that they are remembered no more. That they're not held against us. But to be able to rest in the work of Jesus Christ. Knowing that we have received His righteousness. So that we are accepted by our Heavenly Father as holy and righteous. To know that the Father accepts us as His children is a glorious truth, a wonderful thought. But most of us don't grasp the full extent of this acceptance in Christ. That Christ's righteousness covers us. So that when the Father looks upon us, He sees perfect obedience. He looks upon you and me if we're in Christ as though we have never sinned. Now my mind cannot comprehend that fully. But I love it. I love the thought of that. I love to meditate upon that. That I have the righteousness of Christ and as God looks upon me, He looks upon me as though I have never sinned and that I have completely obeyed Him in everything. Why? Because of the work of Christ. How glorious and how wonderful it is. And that brings rest. Rest that I don't have to do anything to earn favor with God because it's all been done. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that I don't want to serve God, that I don't want to worship God. It means just the opposite, that I want to serve God and worship God even more as I think upon this amazing grace that He's bestowed upon me that I'm accepted by the Father, that I'm at peace with Him, that we're no longer under the wrath of God, but we're accepted as the beloved due to His finished work. This past week, my wife posted on Facebook what Roger Nicole said when he came to his deathbed, that he knew one thing for sure, that he would not be judged because he was in Christ. I mean, that gives you rest. When you come to death, that's the only thing that will give you peace and rest. That you know without a shadow of the doubt in your mind that you are in Christ and you will not follow under the judgment of God because you are in Christ and you have been accepted as the beloved. Jeff Thomas says, However holy and righteous a God, the lawgiver in heaven may be, whatever integrity there is in the law, and the law of the Lord is perfect, whatever demands for atonement God requires, everything has been rendered by the Lord in His finished work. All our salvation from beginning to end has been accomplished by Christ. That ought to make us say hallelujah. Amen. Glory be to God.
do you see? That Jesus Christ is the only way to have access to God. He brought peace with God. He removes all of our guilt by pardoning all of our sin. Therefore, why would you not lay hold of Christ? Why would you not lay hold of His righteousness and His forgiveness? Do you see the reconciliation that Christ brought? Do you treasure it? Do you treasure it to the extent that it becomes something so lovely and too that you just can't get over it? Do you treasure it like, like you would treasure the greatest prize here on earth? Do you treasure it even more than that? You know, at this time of the year, a lot, a lot of girls, they get weighted down. And they walk around like this. In other words, they're treasuring what they receive. I mean, it's a great treasure to them. Well, multiply that times a trillion, and that should be the treasure that we have in Christ. That his suffering was not in vain, that his death accomplished exactly what he intended to do, and that is to save his people from their sins. As the title of John Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. It explains the two sides of redemption. It's accomplishment through Jesus' atonement and its application in the believer. Our salvation, not simply an opportunity to be saved, but our salvation is an actuality. Jesus Christ actually saves us from our sin. And we are also able to rest in good works. You say, wait a minute, Pastor, now you're confusing me. You just said that all of it is in Christ, but yet now you're saying good works. That's exactly what I'm saying. We don't have time for me to read chapter 16 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. We're going to be preaching on it at our Deep South Founders Conference in January, January 21st through the 23rd, and I encourage you to be here for each one of those sermons which speak of good works, good works that we can rest in as a result of our salvation. Did you hear what I said? These good works are a result of our salvation. They don't give us salvation. As a result of our salvation, we will have good works. Once we are saved, we have a desire to please God. If you do not have a desire to please God, And it's evident, your desire to please God will be evident in what? In keeping His commandments. You love His commandments. You love His Ten Commandments. You will keep all ten of His commandments. You will seek to keep them. Why? Because you love God. And God has said, keep them. And that's your greatest desire, to do what God requires of you. And if God requires us to keep them, I want to keep them. I love them. Just as His Son loved them and desired to keep them. Every one of them. Jesus said, for I have come down from heaven to what? To do my, not to do my own will, but what? The will of him who sent me. So Jesus has given us the perfect example. Our desire must be the same as Jesus' desire. To please our heavenly Father in all that we do. As long as he allows us to walk on this earth, our desire should be to please him. What will you say when you come to the end of your life? What has been your purpose in living? What sustains you? What what drives you? Why do you live? All of us were sent into this world. None were born by mistake. Jesus was sent into the world, but there is a sense in which you and I likewise were sent into this world as well. Do you know why you were sent into this world? Are you living to be what God wants you to be? And are you doing what God wants you to do? Whatever that may be, wherever that may be. Listen. Don't waste 
your life on the non-essentials. Many of you read the book by John Piper, and I encourage you to read it if you haven't. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life on the non-essentials. Life is too short. Life is too important. One day, you will look back and you will wonder, where did the years go? Man, I wish I could go back and live it again. If I just could go back and I, I, if I could just do this or just do that with my family or, or at church or whatever, put whatever you want to in that blank. We must realize that we must treasure each day that God has given it. Use it for His glory. Some of you may think that you're too old. Moses wasn't called till he was 80 years old. And then he served 40 years. So don't use that excuse. God has us something to do until the day that we are buried in the grave. And retirement years should be some of our most important years because we have more freedom to serve God and worship God. So in one sense, you can say the best is yet to come. Even though we might be hurting when we do it painfully because of old age, but yet those can be the best years. And Jesus Christ is able to accomplish much even in our retirement years. These works will endure, the Scripture tells us. We must Seek to be like Enoch. We must walk with God until we are with God. Paul gave us a clear teaching there in Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul spoke of his own life there in 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not me only, but also to all who have loved His appearance. That should include you and me. Do you love his appearing? He finished God's race set before him. And many, many have followed his example. This reminds me of the words of George Whitfield, that great preacher in England. He said, take care of your life. And the Lord will take care of your death. Whitfield, born in 1714 in Gloucester. He crossed the Atlantic 13 times. Some said that he was a workaholic for the Lord. He said, I had rather wear out than rust out. I like that. At 55, he looked like an old man. And he spent his last weeks in that year preaching farewell sermons. He constantly lived with bad health. His solution for his health problem was more usually to travel and preach. In July of 1770, he sailed to New York, from New York to Newport, Rhode Island, arriving on August the 3rd, he preached almost every day until he was too ill to preach. As he stood on one occasion to preach, someone said, Sir, you were more fit to go to bed than to preach. He answered, True, sir. And turning aside, he clapped his hand and he began to preach. Lord Jesus, I am weary in thy word, but not in thy work. 
If I have not yet finished my course, let me go and speak for thee once more in the field. Seal that truth and come home and I die. Afterwards he rode, not on a car, by horse, 30 miles to Newburyport, arriving there at the parsonage of First Presbyterian Church. Exhausted, he went up and laid upon his bed. But people pressed so at the door, wishing to hear him. So he crawled out of bed to the top of the stairwell with a candle in his hand and preached until the candle burned out. He went to bed, but woke in the middle of the night struggling to breathe. He believed it was asthma, but it was most likely heart failure. His friends tried everything they could to relieve him of his symptoms, but by 6 a.m. the next morning, he had passed away, three months short of his 56th birthday. They realized that he had at last passed into the presence of his Lord and Savior that he loved and served so faithfully. He had on his tombstone, I am content to wait for the day of judgment for the clearing up of my character. And after I'm dead, I desire no more appetite than this. Here lies George Whitfield. What sort of man he was, the great day will discover. Don't waste the one lifetime that you and I have. Spend it worshiping and serving God. That's my plead, that from now on you do what God's will is for your life and do it with the energy that He supplies by His Holy Spirit until you reach the end and you can say with your Lord, it is finished.